Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I am Ayan Owens, the Research Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization at the IISS. Hello, and I am Antonio Sampaio. I am a Research Fellow for Conflict Security and Development. So today we're We'll talk about the economic uh, impact and fallout of the global coronavirus um, pandemic. So the closure of businesses and the social distancing brought about by the global coronavirus pandemic is being called the Great Lockdown. But it is also expected to be a great economic crisis, which according to the International Monetary Fund will be the most severe one since the Great Depression of the 1930s. China has announced an economic contraction of 6.8% the first quarter, and the rest of the world might follow the trend. The IMF says that the global economy will probably contract by 3% in 2020. This, of course, carries implications for the role of governments in the economy, the prospects for global cooperation, trade, and globalization. And to help us navigate these turbulent geoeconomic waters, I am speaking today with David Gordon, who is the Senior Advisor for Geoeconomics and Strategy here at the IISS. David was Vice Chairman of the U.S. National Intelligence Council in the past, as well as the Director for Policy Planning in the U.S. State Department. So, David, I think we're all seeing with our own eyes as we go for our allowed once-a-day walks the economic damage of this pandemic. Stores closed, uh, restaurants closed. But can you explain to us what makes this crisis even bigger than the uh, financial crisis of the late 2000s? Yes, I think that the the main factor that 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 makes this uh, a, a likely to be a deeper recession is the simultaneity of government-ordered shutdowns of the economy. Uh, so this is really the uh, an unprecedented uh, occurrence that, that generally recessions are either the result of some kind of financial shock or they're the result of cyclical economic pressures, uh, inflation getting out of control, then, then interest rates going up, leading to uh, a, a, a downturn in investment and economic activity. So the normal, the normal drivers of a recession are not in play here, and the, the driver of this recession is the fact that governments all over the world, and in particular in every major economic uh, actor in the world economy, have simultaneously put in place the social distancing uh, and other kinds of responses in order to prevent the massive spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Uh, and in c comparison with uh, 2008, uh, at that time, uh, this was a crisis that began in the financial system. It spread very widely, but it spread over a much longer period of time, and substantial elements of the world economy, in particular China, were able to uh, largely avoid any impact uh, back then. So it's simultaneity uh, and it's the fact 
that that uh, governments are shutting down economic activity very, very broadly in response to this health crisis that that makes this both a very unusual uh, economic contraction, uh, but also a very, very, very steep one. Right. And I suppose that simultaneity also extends to uh, government's actions around the world um, to mitigate that impact and that damage that's being done to the economy, um, to various economies at the moment. Here in the UK, of course, um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's conservative government um, has announced that it would help pay up to 80% of people's wages for companies at risk. And the Chancellor Rishi Sunak has said that this is the first time in history that the UK government um, would help pay people's salaries. So how much of a difference do you think that efforts like this make for economic recovery? I mean, presumably it, it adds to business uh, resilience. Yes. So, so this is, I think, very important. Uh, uh, and the, the UK response uh, has been uh, parallel to the response of many governments in, in Europe. Uh, in the US, uh, the, there, ha there has not been a parallel response in terms of insuring wages, but there has been an enormous increase in the availability of credit uh, for small businesses and large businesses that, that hopefully will enable them to keep uh, many, many more workers from being furloughed uh, and, and go into um, kinds of policies and strategies that sustain demand. So all of this in my view, is about keeping businesses alive and sustaining some levels of demand uh, on, the con on the consumer side. Uh, and and that, will be, that will be very, very, very significant, I think, uh, in, in both helping people uh, uh, sustain the, their, their own economic and financial viability during the crisis, but will also give them the confidence to uh, begin buying again in a, in a more comprehensive way when the crisis eases. So what we're seeing uh, part of the way that the crisis has worked is that governments have worked to, to, to have created social distancing uh, um, guidelines uh, and have forced businesses to close, but then consumers have also stopped purchases, even online purchases of most things other than necessities. So part of what these programs and this enormous fiscal response that we're seeing all around the world is doing uh, is uh, an attempt to create the basis for uh, a more V-shaped recovery when uh, governments begin to remove the restrictions on economic activity and on productive activity. 
And as governments ride to the rescue, um, are we seeing more or less global cooperation in terms of trade institutions such as the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization? I remember that during the 2008-2009 uh, crisis, um, I was working as a, as a journalist on international affairs in Brazil, and uh, the G20 became a very important and a, a very frequent forum for discussions, responses, global packages of help and aid. Um, so uh, do we tend to see a strengthening of international fora uh, such as the G20 and the UN-linked institutions, or do you see a recovery phase, meaning a retreat from global engagement, for instance, by reshoring supply chains and being more suspicious of international cooperation? Yes, I think one of the, of the differences between uh, what's happening in the world economy uh, in this crisis versus what happened in the global financial crisis uh, uh, t 12 years ago uh, is that there, there is substantially less international cooperation this time around. Uh, and I think that, that there are a, a number of drivers of this. Uh, I think... Uh, one is uh, that in, I think, in health crises, all politics becomes domestic uh, and that, that the, the, pressure, the pressure on very stressed supply chains for global health commodities uh, ha has created a, a, a sort of every country for themselves kind of a mentality. Uh, so that's one element of it. But the second, uh, and I think critical to this, uh, is the impact of existing and indeed growing tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, and uh, the China, which was able to become the engine of mitigation and the engine uh, of uh, beginning to turn around the crisis 12 years ago, is no longer in a position to do that. They were the first country heavily hit, uh, and as a result of uh, this huge uh, investment um, creation that they undertook at the time of the global financial crisis. They created a, an enormous debt overhang in their own economy that they're just beginning now to, to get a handle on. Uh, on the U.S. side, you have P President Trump, who is overtly uh, extremely nationalist. Uh, it's uh, America first, uh, and and it's America first, especially during a time of economic crisis. So uh, the last cr crisis actually saw the upgrading of the G20 from what had been a finance minister's level uh, organization to a a head of government organization, uh, and and 
that and the G20 was the forum uh, uh, 12 and 13 years ago for international cooperation. Now, that's not to say that the G20 is doing nothing now. Certainly, the agreement uh, on curtailing energy supplies in order to put a floor around the oil market uh, that, that happened last week, uh, that, that was largely accomplished uh, under the auspices of the G20 working with OPEC uh, and, and Russia. Uh, so the, the G20 has had something of a role but I, I do think that a combination of the U.S. Uh, orientation towards America first and the Chinese uh, unwillingness to, to, uh, and, and lack of capacity to get involved uh, in this crisis in a way parallel to what they did uh, in the global financial crisis uh, has made uh, a cooperative response much less likely. And um, given this uh, lessened uh, prospects for cooperation globally, what do you think the um, impact of that will be or the implications for emerging economies, let's, let's say, or the um, low-income, uh, low middle-income countries. I'm thinking here of countries like Brazil, Turkey, um, but also the developing world in, in terms of low-income countries uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. Um, will, will that mean that uh, recovery will be slower this time than, than the last time around in the 2000s? That's a very, very good question, Antonio. Uh, so at the IMF World Bank spring meetings that are going on now, of course, virtually, uh, the, the people aren't actually meeting. Uh, but, but at these meetings, the, there has been a move um, by both the uh, G7 and the G20 prompted by uh, the IMF and the World Bank to create a, a one-year debt moratorium for the, um, for the most highly indebted countries, the so-called HIPAA countries. Uh, and, and that has been agreed to. Uh, I think that just sets the stage for uh, additional debt relief uh, um, dynamics that will come in play over the next several months. A lot of this is going to depend on what happens with global supply chains. So there's been a lot of talk, I think, uh, and a lot of ambition on uh, sort of loosening the dependence of countries on global supply chains particularly for strategic commodities. And uh, in the aftermath of this crisis and in the expectation that there are likely to be future crises like this, that health commodities are, are now being seen as strategic uh, by many, many, many governments. So 
I think part of the question is uh, to what extent will there actually be a, a, a decoupling, a shortening of supply chains. I think, in my view, uh, what, what we're likely to see is a pretty sharp shift away from the dominance of efficiency concerns, just-in-time uh, supply chains, to the creation of much more redundant and resilient supply chains. Now, that will happen, that will have some, some negative impact on efficiency in the world economy, but I think it's, uh, it, it's likely to mitigate the, the impact of the desire to shorten supply chains. Uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe of really quickly uh, easing the, the dependence on China for, for manufactured goods. Uh, and I'm quite skeptical that, that we're actually going to be able to head in that direction. If you look at just the sheer dominance of China uh, in global manufacturing. China really is the factory of the world. Uh, and there, it's simply not going to be easy to shift that quickly to other places. There's, there's no other place uh, that can take this up very quickly. There's no other big country uh, pr prepared to do so, Vietnam, some of the other Southeast Asian countries over time can do this, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that we're actually going to see the, uh, the level of supply chain shifts that, is, that are now being discussed uh, actively by governments, per, per, particularly in Europe and in the United States. I think it's just much more difficult to accomplish this. Uh, rather, I think it, it would be interesting to see if there can be more moves t towards uh, creating um, frameworks for ensuring uh, that for strategic health goods, for instance, uh, that governments create something along the lines of, of the strategic petroleum reserves that many governments now have. These were created in the aftermath of the 1973 OPEC embargo uh, and, and have served a, a quite useful purpose uh, and were combined with commitments to free trade uh, in the oil market. So there, there is a model here, I think, for, uh, for multilateral potential, multilateral cooperation. The question is, will you be able to, uh, to move towards that kind of a, an engagement uh, in the aftermath of the COVID 
crisis, particularly given uh, what are very, very strong tensions between the U.S. and China and a lot of, of very uh, bad chemistry having to do with the fact that China, uh, in the early phases of the crisis, uh, was not at all transparent in what was happening in Wuhan. Uh, and then uh, you had the United States in particular uh, wanting to, to blame Ch China as a result of that for the global crisis. Uh, and, and a lot of, of negative tensions emerging from that dynamic. I mean, there's so much to unpack from what you just said, David, but maybe I'll just um, ask a question about supply chains um, as well and perhaps shortening those from China's perspective, because it's, of course, not only um, Western countries and countries that trade with China for uh, strategic um, components or goods, that are being affected by uh, the slowdown in the Chinese economy and, and the current crisis. Um, but China itself, of course, is facing with um, a supply chain uh, crisis at the moment. Um, I know that the government has come out and said that there have been a, a few issues or that the um, supply chain has been impacted somewhat. But I, I think we um, analysts agree uh, that there is, the impact has been much further reaching than, than perhaps the Chinese government is willing to admit at the moment. And a follow-up on um, impact of this of, is, of course, that whilst... Um, they're trying to kickstart uh, consumer confidence again in China um, as the economy slowly opens up. Costs are rising for, for everyday goods that are being impacted by these uh, supply chain um, disruptions. So how do you think this is going to impact what China does with regards to its industrial and, um, and other supply chains in the future? That's a really great question, Maya, uh, and, and not an easy one to answer. So I think that China ha has been reasonably successful in uh, restoring s supply chains, but that the damage that was done to those supply chains was huge. And I think in China, uh, in particular, the end point of the supply chains uh, wa was very often uh, very, very small enterprises uh, whose existence is now uncertain, right? So, so again, um, in, in the Western countries, you had these enormous fiscal efforts uh, that, that have been targeted on enabling particularly small businesses uh, to remain solvent. China's economy, uh, uh, at, at, as you're well aware, uh, ha has this vast, enormous sort of informal, particularly commercial uh, uh, set of uh, very small enterprises that, that play a key role in providing uh, both employment and income to millions and millions, tens of millions uh, of Chinese, particularly, po I'm sorry, potentially uh, even hundreds of millions, uh, and 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 also uh, it is the the key point in at the end of the 
supply chain. Uh, and I think that we, we still don't know, and I don't think the Chinese government knows uh, about what the status is uh, of, of that element of the supply chain. Uh, now, I think the, the, the big question here uh, on for, for China is what's going to happen in terms of balancing domestic needs with China's traditional role as an exporter, uh, and whether China will go into a, a, a stance uh, of paying more attention to the domestic market. They'll be able to do that in, in the short run because the external market has dr dried up so much for China that that a, a focus on the domestic market does not really involve very much of a trade-off uh, in the immediate term. Uh, but over, over the medium term, I think this is going to be a, a, a really significant question for China. Uh, and I think that the Chinese recovery uh, it's, it's been reasonably V-shaped up to a 75 to 80% number in terms of supply chain restoration. But I think getting above that number is going to be very, very challenging. Uh, and, and you're correct. I think that, that a lot of this challenge is seen in prices rising uh, in China for lots of commodities. Maybe just to go back to um, Antonio's question as well on international economic cooperation, um, a big question that's been asked um, and raised uh, uh, to the Chinese foreign ministry has been about debt relief along its Belt and Road Initiative project, um, particularly in Africa. I was wondering, how do you see this developing? Is this something that China can do? Is it something that China will do? Um, I think the foreign ministry spokesman, spokesperson has been um, quite vague and, and non-committal on this. Um, but, but really, my question is for a project like the Belt and Road Initiative, which was already garnering um, some negative um, or just some criticism at home in domestic public discourse in China, um, how much is, is debt relief a re, uh, real possibility at the moment, both, both economically and politically? So I think that, that debt relief in Africa among the poorest countries uh, is happening. Uh, so uh, that, was, that was the push that occurred earlier this week uh, uh, at the, at the uh, IMF meeting, uh, and China agreed uh, to cooperate with the, the G7 proposal for a debt moratorium for the HIPAA countries. I think this issue gets much harder for China when you go beyond the HIPAA countries, the poorest countries, uh, to other countries in Africa and other and countries in Central Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, and I think over over the next several months, uh, you're going to see a a a major tension emerging 
between the U.S., which uh, is going to push very hard uh, with support, I think, from many European countries uh, to say that, that unless China uh, actively participates in multilateral efforts at debt relief, uh, then we, we the, the, the rest of the global creditors, will insist that governments who are receiving debt relief will not be able to use any of those resources to continue payments to China for BRI debt. Uh, so I think that the likely, again, the, the likely simultaneity of a lot of debt um, <clears throat> crises in BRI recipient countries will serve as a factor that will put a lot of pressure on China uh, to go beyond what has been its policy on debt relief, and that is to do debt relief, but only very, very quietly uh, and uh, in a totally non-transparent fashion. I think that policy is going to be harder and harder to accomplish. So I think China will be forced to enter into a more collaborative relationship with uh, the global, other global creditors, uh, and that will be a problem for China domestically uh, because it will then become clear the degree to which a lot of the, the very, very substantial uh, investments under BRI will end up not being repaid. Uh, and of course, BRI was sold domestically in China as a win-win proposition, partially because of the fact that its financing took the form of commercial loans rather than grants. And if, as uh, I think is likely, uh, those loans, many, many of those loans end up taking on a much greater grant component as countries in the BRI uh, are incapable of repaying, I think the domestic politics of this in China will get a lot more challenging. This seems to be a, a give or break moment for some of these international initiatives or even organizations uh, that have been created in the past few decades or even since the, the end of the Second World War uh, in terms of how they are ready to, to respond to this really massive global crisis. When we look at uh, French President Emmanuel Macron was um, saying in a recent interview that um, the, the European Union should show more solidarity and stop being, the, the main countries at least should stop looking so much inwards because it might, failing to, to be more, um, um, to have more solidarity would create problems in the future for the European project. How are the current um, international organizations and um, initiatives such as the European Union, uh, but I'm also thinking here of 
in North America in terms of the cooperation there in Latin America. Um, how are the recent, uh, current, existing uh, international uh, projects and initiatives prepared to deal? How have they changed since the 2009 financial crisis to prepare for a potential global crisis like this? Well, I don't think anybody was prepared for this kind of a crisis. Uh, so uh, in, in finance, as in the military arena, uh, I think countries always seek to prepare for a repeat of the most recent crisis. Uh, and so after the 2008 crisis, there was a lot of strengthening of financial institutions, of financial cooperation and collaboration mechanisms uh, between countries. Uh, and, and those remain intact. I think that the that the financial institutional side of the global economy uh, remains in relatively good shape. Uh, and that's the good news here. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Antonio, I think you're absolutely right that, that the, the response in Europe uh, has very much been along the lines of what I spoke of earlier, parallel to the response in the U.S. Uh, it's every country and every government for itself. Uh, and so I, I do think that, that, that the, the crisis is further highlighting this huge contradiction in Europe between uh, a lot of effective um, move in responsibility of areas of European economy and society to the EU level, to Brussels, uh, but at the same time, politics in Europe has remained fundamentally national. And what we're seeing in this crisis is when a crisis happens, it's the national side of that balance that gets reinforced at the expense of the European side. Uh, so I, I do agree with, with President Macron that, that right now uh, you, you are exacerbating the tensions uh, in, in Europe uh, in a way that is going to, uh, I think, reinforce what had already been important uh, tensions between the Southern European countries and the, and the major countries, uh, Netherlands, uh, Germany, France, uh, in in the the in the more northern parts of Europe, at the international level, the big issue we're we're having here now is the decision a few days ago by President Trump to defund the World Health Organization, uh, and the the reason he did so was uh, the the view by the United States with, with I think, some, uh, some considerable realism behind it that uh, in, in the very early stages of the crisis, the, the World Health Organization was in, 
in some ways complicit with Chinese efforts uh, to minimize transparency around what was going on in Wuhan. Uh, on the other hand, I think the the notion that that you're going to <clears throat> put in doubt the ability of the World Health Organization to operate during a global health crisis is just an enormous, an enormous mistake by the United States, uh, and and will serve to weaken. Uh, U.S. soft power and and the uh, the ability of the the U United States to mobilize others in the international community for any kind of concerted effort. Absolutely, and I think the point on the WHO also um, touches upon a, a larger debate in um, the the area of China studies at the moment. Uh, which is China's influence um, in international organizations and, and just how much, how far that influence carries um, to support Chinese domestic and foreign policy. Um, but, but we might leave that for another time. David, it would be a remiss of me if I did not ask a question about Chinese elite politics within the Communist Party, having the opportunity of having a, a, such an insightful China watcher as yourself on our podcast. So how do you think that the current crisis will affect the Chinese people's view, uh, the domestic public opinion of the Communist Party and political stability in China in the aftermath of the coronavirus? Yeah, well, that, that's a very tough question. So, so I do believe that, that uh, the, the failure of the Chinese authorities uh, to, uh, to pr provide information and a, a strong response, again, in the very early days of this, uh, will have negative domestic implications for China. I think that, that when the crisis recedes, uh, the, uh, it, it's not just going to be the United States that will be pressing China on this, but uh, the whole world will be. And I think it's not going to be easy for the Chinese authorities to come up with a, a, uh, a response uh, that, that is compelling. So I, I do think that, that, that uh, the, the, the crisis is going uh, in a not immediately, but but at, at when it when it begins to wane at the economic level and at the health level, I think that that uh, paradoxically, I think at that point, uh, it it's going to be more of a challenge for Xi Jinping for, and for the kind of highly centralized uh, form of governance that, that he has uh, moved China towards during the period of his presidency. So China, I think that, that, that China has always been uh, under, under uh, the Communist Party, China has always been an authoritarian 
country, but but I think you you've had this narrowing of openness on information. You've had the centralization of authority uh, uh, in uh, the the hands of Xi and a very close coterie. I think that 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 these uh, elements are are going to to be challenged. So I think that. China is going to face uh, quite a, a, a uh, uncertain period politically, and and this indeed, I I don't think that we can assume uh, that that uh, we we will have Xi Jinping as a president f- for life in China. Thank you, David, so much for sharing your excellent insights, and it's been a fascinating discussion. My pleasure. Thank you to our listeners as well for joining us again, and remember to subscribe to Sun Strategic for more in-depth discussions like this, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date with the latest trends in defense, international security, and armed conflicts. Stay safe, stay healthy, and see you next time.